all I I'm 28. I know East Cleveland to be like the hood. Like I've heard stories like it used to be a nice suburban area, nice buildings, everything. But I don't know that. So where did the fall start? Like what time, what era? And also by you being a community, a community leader, someone out there giving back, what do you think? steps has to be taken for the younger generation this next generation coming up to start doing the same things you're doing to go back to their neighborhoods where they grew up at where they went to high schools at to start these programs to start also building their neighborhood back up but also keeping them if they're if it's still intact and nice keeping it that way so so let me be honest with you that's two separate podcasts Willie and Alex from the Black Culture Podcast. I know you're ready to get into this video, but before you do that, make sure to subscribe to our channel and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at the Black Culture Podcast. All right. So today we have a great friend of mine, uh, Mr. Travell Harp, who is the executive director of NOAA, which stands for Northeast Ohio Alliance for Hope. Uh it's going to be a lot to, to unpack this, this episode just because he and I have talked so much. He's doing some great things in the city of East Cleveland, which was my old stumping grounds. Um, Willie Ashford, uh, myself, welcome to the Black Culture Podcast. Yes, sir. Uh, thanks so much for, you know, thanks for, thanks, thanks for inviting me. Yeah. Yeah, for sure, man. So, so let's, so let's get into you. I, I want to dig into you as an individual. Um, the first question I want to ask you though is what's start- whoa, whoa, whoa. You're right, you're right. Like one. Well, it took us a while to get here. So look, we have this, <laughs> we have this tradition on the black culture podcast where before okay. every before every episode, we like to toast it up. Okay. All right, I, I got a I got a cup of water. Is that, is that cool? <laughs> yes, sir. There we go. I'm gonna have to give me a black mug though, so. Yeah, man. So, you know, just because of the technical difficulties, it slipped my mind. So, Willie, you're going to have to forgive me. I was doing so, so well for the past, past few months. man. You was on a nice streak, man. You you ended it today. Yeah. Dang. (laughs) Awful, man. My fault, man. My fault, man. (laughs) Nah, bro. You could. But, all right. Let's, let's get back. What started your passion for community organizing? Like, I've, I've always wanted to know that. Oh, wow. Um, you know, that, that's a deep question that probably would take me back. I, I, don't, I, I don't want to take too much time on it, though, but it, I mean, it really is a, a deep story. Um, it's just rooted in, like, my own personal journey as a human being, um, navigating, you know, um, elementary school, high, uh, middle school, high school, um, you know, my, my spiritual journey, um, you know, uh, just, just looking at... Um, the things that affect people and communities and opportunity. Um, so just to fast forward, um, I really took a love for East Cleveland. I grew up here when I was younger and I didn't act, and actually, my parents matriculated up to Cleveland Heights. And so, you know, I went to Caledonia and then I ended up finishing up elementary school at Noble and uh, graduated from Cleveland Heights High, that kind of thing. And then immediately after high school, I started doing CNC programming. And, Hold on, uh, wait, wait, wait a minute. What, what, what high school did you say? That uh, Cleveland Heights. I don't tell nobody though, because uh, you know, <laughs> oh, Cardinals and, and 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 Tigers don't really get along. <laughs> but uh, but but you know, um, I, I think that there's a time where we, we can all work together. You know. But anyway, so 
uh, you know, just, just had a journey in my life where I, I really uh, wanted to make an impact in, in you know, in, you know, my, my people, you know, black people in particular, and I couldn't understand why uh, predominantly African-American community suffered in the way that it did. And, um, and so that combined with like my own personality, my own personal journey, dealing with self-esteem issues, dealing with self-worth, uh, feeling rejected, you know, in different points in my life, I kind of sort of like took that, that emotional struggle and polarized it to a, you know, because I could relate to the communities Cleveland. Um, I saw a community that, you know, I mean, when you look at Northeast Ohio in general, a very strong market, you know, there's a lot of wealth and money, old money um, in Northeast Ohio, and particularly in Cleveland and that kind of thing, but it's not always equitable, you know, and, uh, and one of the stark uh, contrasts that I saw was, you know, the difference between rolling and university circle, what was thriving, even through the recession of 2007, around that time and that kind of stuff, they were doing billions of dollars worth of development, and then you go right into East Cleveland and it's struggling. And so what brought me back to East Cleveland, I, I was a year into John Carroll, um, a lot of debt and, you know, kind of kind of poor and that kind of stuff. And, and a friend of mine who was going to CSU at the time, um, you know, we decided to actually rent out a house together, to, you know, just, to, you know, enjoy the summer and that kind of thing. And, and that experience sort of like uh, made a lot of pivots for me. And so, I mean, uh, the house that we stayed on was a house on the street called Hower. And those of you know East Cleveland, and so there used to be a Kentucky Fried Chicken at the intersection of Euclid and Howard, coming right out of the University Circle, and there's that street, and it's probably was probably arguably one of the worst streets in the city. And at that time, one half of the street was the City of Cleveland, the other half was East Cleveland. The street was riddled with vacant and abandoned properties, apartment buildings. There was there was, there was obvious drug activity happening, you know, uh, on the street. Uh, but one thing that sort of like touched me. Um, and I, and I, you know, I kind of joke around a little bit about it because uh, they had a, 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 the opposite reaction. Well, it touched uh, my roommate too, but it had an opposite reaction with him. Um, but with me, you know, we, we stayed in the two family house and there was a, a single parent grandmother that lived um, on the first floor. And, and she was taking care, I believe, of her, her, her son's uh, uh, baby and then a little girl, uh, probably about seven or eight. And, you know, I was just so amazed about how like articulate and how smart and, 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 and engaging. And it was just like the little girl had a lot of potential and I always thought about like, um, you know, how is, how are the resources that are right across probably less than a half a mile away in university circle going to be accessible to her and that kind of thing or people like her in the community. And then, so that led to further questions. And so after that summer, you know, I didn't finish up at uh, John Carroll's, just way too much money for me, but um, I literally transitioned, um, and there's a whole story in that too, but literally transitioned into um, East Cleveland and transitioned from being, you know, because uh, because I, I was in technology, I was, uh, you know, I, I was I basically I was a machinist that did CNC. I programmed machines to make other machine parts and. I did CAD drawings and all that kind of stuff for a small prototyping shop. And I transitioned to becoming a community organizer. And it's something a little bit different, um, even in my personality, because I wasn't necessary. I wasn't always sort of like um, a person that liked to get in front of people and talk or motivate and you know, that kind of stuff. I was more or less, uh, you know, a person 
introvert, you know, you know, I, I, you know, I watch science fiction. I like Star Trek, you know, that kind of thing. I didn't really, I wasn't really that people person. Nerd like, or geek? Which, which one do you? Pr- probably, a, probably a hybrid of them both. A hybrid. Okay. A gotcha. hybrid. But, um, and, and, you know, I mean, I just, I just realized that like, you know, the, the type of innovation and technology and the things that, you know, uh, you know, tech and that kind of stuff can be really, um, really uh, beneficial to community if we don't get over our social, uh, you know, our social problems that we have as far as like just people just having basic opportunity, which is a big thing. Now, so that's like, well, go ahead. If, if you can do me a quick favor um, for our, our audience who might not know the history of East Cleveland, which used to be one of the wealthiest communities in the country at one point, can you break down just real quick what East Cleveland was versus what it is now? Yeah, East Cleveland was the first suburb of Cleveland. Uh, you know, suburbs, basically, you know, when, when you look at it, urban history as a code word for, you know, really segregating uh, community by wealth and class. Well, 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 I would say by race and class, you know, um, so very affluent uh, white people wanted to live in different space, sp- spaces than even other white, people, other, other, other ethnic groups of white people and that kind of thing. But certainly, um, you know, there wasn't many black people that lived here and everything. As a matter of fact, um, the population of East Cleveland stayed less than 1% white. I mean, less than 1% non-white, not even black, just non-white, you know, probably into the 1950s, 1960s. And that's when it began a transition. Um, but it's the first suburb of Cleveland. Um, John D. Rockefeller, the first, the world's first billionaire, basically his estate was Forest Hill Park. Um, and, you know, I mean, that speaks volumes in itself, you know, all the conspiracy theories that people say, you know, there's, there's a reason why, you know, out of 11 spaces, 11 places where there's a Federal Reserve Bank in this country, there's one in Cleveland. Hey guys, it's Willie from the Black Culture Podcast. I know you're enjoying this dope interview, but before you continue, make sure to like, subscribe to our YouTube channel and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at the Black Culture Podcast. Um, because John D. Rockefeller was here. There's also uh, the first suburban industrial park in GE, um, which is a several acre. I mean, GE was probably one of the other bigger companies, you know, in the world and that kind of stuff. And arguably, even that today, even though they, they sold uh, two of the divisions in uh, Needle Park. Um, so let's just say, I mean, there's just a lot of wealth and affluence. Um, they had garbage pickup back in the day, about two days a week. You know, imagine them coming right in your backyard, picking up trash twice, twice a week and that kind of thing. And so East Cleveland was- They would actually go in the yard and get it. I believe so. I believe oh, wow. so. Oh, and, wow. And, and, uh, they, they, um, you know, they, they, there's like these uh, classic Rockefeller homes in East Cleveland. Um, I, I would, I would imagine, I think maybe seventy uh, percent of them are in East Cleveland, and about 30, 30 to twenty five percent are in Cleveland Heights. Um, that that were uh, commissioned, I believe, by Rockefeller's son, I want to say, or son in law. Well, anyway, uh, I mean, so just a lot of history. East Cleveland, uh, well built infrastructure. Um, if you go in the Forest Hill District, even today, uh, you notice that like there's there, there's probably there, there maybe a little bit now, but but minimally. I mean, you look up and you kind of like look at the tree treescape. You won't see any power lines because it was one of the first industrial cities with within that part of the city. Because um, so East East Cleveland, even when it was created as a suburb, is divided into different subdivisions. So you're 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 so like upper middle class to upper class. 
is up the hill um, in the Forest Hill District. And then you get to your, your, your middle class, you know, alongside between Terrace and Euclid, and then your, your working class, you know, a little, a little further north down, like the Roselle neighborhoods over there by um, Chambers over there by Shaw and that kind of stuff. So I have and a so, question for you. Yeah. I'm sorry to cut you off. Mm -hmm. So actually, it's a, two, it's a two two part question. My first question is, when did you start noticing the fall of East Cleveland? Because like me, all I, I'm 28. I know East Cleveland to be like the hood. Like I've heard stories, like it used to be a nice suburban area, nice buildings, everything, but I don't know that. So where did the fall start? Like what time, what era? And also by you being a community, a community leader, someone out there giving back, what do you think steps has to be taken for the younger generation, this next generation coming up to start doing the same things you're doing, to go back to their neighborhoods where they grew up at, where they went to high schools at, to start these programs, to start also building their neighborhood back up, but also keeping them, if they're if it's still intact and nice, keeping it that way. Yeah, Bro, so, so I'm going to be lot. honest with you. That's two separate podcasts. <laughs> that's, I mean, that, that, that is a loaded question. <laughs> there, there, there's definitely a lot in um, all of that. Um, the reason why you see me kind of looking at screen because I literally do presentations on it. And, and so I want to make sure I give you guys, uh, I got like a PowerPoint that I could, I could just bring up so I can just talk from. Um, but, 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 but just to answer your, 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 your uh, last question first, I mean, I think, I mean, so some East Cleveland right now, there's a lot, there's a lot of opportunity that's available for uh, residents, I believe even right now, I mean, or people who want to invest in that kind of stuff or get involved. Uh, generally speaking, um, I'm kind of sad to say that like our people, we've been conditioned to, to sort of like assimilate with other communities versus finding value in our own community. And, um, and just understanding just like, uh, from a, a deeper sense, what value is, you know, we look at value when other people think things are valuable and then they begin to invest in it. And you say, wow, that's valuable and that kind of stuff. And so then we, by the time we get that mindset we, to go buying it, it's very expensive for us to become a part of it. But, but I think that like black people in general and particularly our young people, we have to understand that value, that what becomes valuable is the value that you put into it. So if you believe it's valuable and begin to invest in that, then that's, that's, that's then it's valuable. So that's value. That's value. And so um, uh, I hope that makes sense. But like, um, so when you think about East Cleveland, there's a lot of opportunity, right? Um, there, there's, I mean, East, about 30% of the housing stock has uh, been, you know, knocked down and everything. There's a lot of housing that's still yet that I believe that has a lot of good bones that you can't even build right now. That um, that uh, that like if you bought it for whatever they say, you know, whatever it goes for, like, you know, some goals for like maybe 15,000, some maybe go for 40,000, that kind of stuff. And that's not necessarily in the Forest Hill District, that kind of stuff. But if you buy a house like that, and then you then you commit to being there, and you put $100,000 into it, then, you know, you, you will have, you, you begin to build that value within the community. And so I guess the first thing I would say is, our community, and particularly our young people, um, young, our young people who are, who are family oriented or going in that direction, you know, the community that we have, uh, you know, we 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 have to, we, I mean, you have you have to just go in there and invest and in everything. Now, it's a difficult thing to do it by yourself. Uh, one of the things that me and Alex talked about 
you know, because you know Noah's a CDC as well. You know, when we get into like doing rehabs and and um and sort of like putting houses in a certain uh, positions so that we can actually get into people and that kind of stuff. Um, I would like to be able to like recruit like five, five or ten families at a time to take literally take over a whole street and actually change the neighborhood and that kind of thing. Um, but I would say my own experience in East Cleveland um, is kind of you know the way I began and you know I definitely felt divinely inspired. But I, I definitely had a lot of, um, you know, I mean, I was naive in a lot of ways to think that like uh, I was impervious to structural um, concentrated poverty. And so, um, you know, I bought a house in East Cleveland back in the 07. Of course, you know, I joke around with a lot of people. It was the worst financial decision I probably made in my life in the sense of, you know, like if you look on a practical sense of like dollars and cents, because what I paid for my house, um, they say it's worth half of that. The banks say that it's worth half of what I paid for it. But the reality, I mean, I think, you know, you go to any other community um, and you see, it, if you have a house with picture stained glass windows and woodwork throughout the house and brick construction and all that kind of stuff, you know, you know that's, that's pretty valuable anywhere else. The reason why, you know, it declined in value is because where is that, that kind of thing. And so, um, you know, it, I think it took a lot of commitment on my end and just blind faith to actually, uh, you know, to make that step. But uh, but I believe that I believe that I believe that it's paying off. And so even though I joke around and say that's probably the worst financial decision in my life, I actually I think it's the best thing that ever happened to me because it helped me grow as an individual, as a person, as a human being. And not only that, but like you know, I really believe that like you know you know just just a couple more people coming in and really believing in the community and believing. I think it's more or less our people believing in ourselves to come in and, and like change the landscape, you know, instead of like choosing to live other places and that kind of stuff. Um, there are pros and cons in dealing with that, but I would say just 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 come and do. And I think the other big thing is um, th there's a tendency for people to come and I've experienced it multiple times. Um, uh, people don't seem to believe the sincerity of the work that we do. Um, outside the community, a lot of, I mean, some people see it and some people don't, that kind of thing. But you get this sort of like this arrogant, sort of like uh, uh, spirit, whereas like, you know, I don't want to see what's already going. I want to start something new. And our people have to stop doing that. Like really, if there's something, if there's organizations or groups of people or, or initiatives that are going that are already being successful, um, don't start nothing new, uh, tap right into it. And there's a lot of really good things that's happening in the community now. So. Um, one thing you and I talk about um, often is black men as leaders in the community. And you just mentioned five to 10 families coming in, taking over street, street by street. And I've always believed that the family is the root of power in any community. And you see it in other communities. Um, other communities watch us just like we watch them. And to build a strong community, it takes family. So I want you to dive into that a little bit. Um, the conversation as far as the black man not being present so much in our community from the work that you do and that you see to the building up again of the black family and how it will make our community stronger. Yeah. So, so, I mean, I, I definitely, so, uh, so, so I, so I, I say this because I have a passion for, you know, really creating pathways for leadership for black men. Um, I think that is very important, even though like, uh, so like you're sort of like, the, I guess the popular narrative now is um, anything but that, you know, um, 
but but I, but I really believe that like you know foundation of a family you know the foundation you know the way that you know I believe biblically that that God has ordained family to operate that kind of stuff. Um, a weak man is, is is not an option. You know we, we need men to stand up. <clears throat> we need men to take responsibility for their family. We need women. I mean men to take responsibility for you know our women and respect them and and and, and to. Uh, you know, basically, you know, you know, love, nurture and protect, you know, our family and our, and our women, you know, marriage, I believe is important. Um, all those types of things. And, and I mean, when you look in community, you definitely see a lacking of that. I mean, it's, 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 it's been dismantled so badly that like uh, now, like I mean, even the national narrative around like, you know, black people in general and what we have to do to um, survive, um, you know, Everything. I mean, I mean, and don't, I mean, I love women, and, and it's, I think it's okay that that you know we have black women power and that kind of stuff too. Uh, but you can't overlook black men. I mean, if if you look at the stats um, around employability, around you know finishing you know college or finishing high school, or you know getting a job or incarceration, or mortality rates. I mean, you name it. I mean, black men are have the worst stats than any other group of people and that kind of thing. And I think that there's something that like, um, it's shameful that like, is, you know, it's not nothing that's it's, it's not really spoke about even when you you speak, you speak listen to the uh, politicians or public, you know, public officials or politicians, the president, senators on the national level, or even a local level talk about, but, um, but, but, you know, maybe it's not their responsibility. Maybe it's our responsibility to develop our own narrative about what we want. And push and push those types of things, but I know certainly with it built in the work that I do here at NOAA, I have um, a, a special heart for developing black men. You know, um, and so that's that's I don't know if that answers your question or anything, but if you want to like jump in with that, it kind of leads back to Alex and I. We had a conversation earlier, and it's like um, within this pandemic, you'd be amazed how many young black people started businesses like the pandemic really started so you have a generation of let's say in the next 15 to 20 years you're gonna have a lot of black owned businesses because you know black people for the most part during this pandemic started they got out there and they started they got they grind and they started their own business so i now definitely black men so and they see, they feel the pressure. They see us coming. They know we're coming. So I feel like the quickest way to tear a man down and to get to us is to get to the women. Yeah. So and, and, and not only that, but like make men feel useless. Exactly. With, with within, uh, you know, I mean, I mean that, that's a tool that's been used even, you know, you know, you know, a tool to, to sort of break us apart even during slavery. Um, uh, consequently, like um, I mean, everybody knows. I think, um, yeah. If 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 you, if you think about this thing at all, I mean, and you actually like look at our history, you know, post slavery, there were stronger families, <laughs> you know, until you got up to like maybe the seventy, eighties, nineties, and that kind of stuff, where things got, um, began to get broke down, and and you know there were structural things put in place. I believe that 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 intentionally, you know, attacked you know, the, the, the very fabric of family within our communities and that kind of stuff. And can, um, you, can you shed some light on those things? Because it was every decade, it was a new weapon of mass destruction to destroy the black family. Yeah, so, so I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not an expert, um, but, but I, I would say, 
uh, you know, drugs being brought into our communities and that kind of stuff, you know, uh, you know, you could say, well, you know, there's a lot of black people that sell drugs and go to jail for it, right? Well, but statistically speaking, if you uh, look at Michelle Alexander's work, uh, I, I can't even remember the name of the book right now, but like she- The New out, Jim Crow. The New Jim Crow, yeah, yeah. Yep. She, 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 put, she, she, she breaks it down how like things became criminalized intentionally to sort of like attack different, so different, different groups of people and that kind of thing, beginning with, uh, you know, uh, the Asian community that came in here and were working on the railroads and that kind of stuff, um, all the way to, you know, uh, black people and in general and everything. But, uh, but I think when like things like crack cocaine got into our communities and everything, one, I mean, I don't, I don't think that like, there's a lot of black people who own the boats that brought the stuff over. I mean, there, there's, there's some, um, you know, you know, like I said, I'm not an expert with it, but um, there, there were um, some notions of even our government getting involved and bring, putting drugs on the streets in, in communities, our communities and everything to fund wars overseas and that kind of stuff. Um, I think, you know, the, the mass incarceration sort of like thing where, you know, black men, you know, can commit a crime and, and another group of people or, you know, white men or women can commit a crime and like the sentences would be like, um, much, much more harsh, you know, really breaking up the family. Um, you know, I mean, all those different types of things, you know, just, just the way that like, you know, um, public assistance uh, come to help uh, communities and that kind of stuff, you know, that, that sort of like puts us in a place where there's an incentive not to have a man in the house, you know, in order to get public assistance and that kind of thing. You know, I think all those things sort of like broke down. And then I think just a just a straight, you know, divestment in the development of black men in education. I mean, even myself, I mean, part of the struggle I had with self-esteem was dealing with, you know, um, I mean, I was one of those black males, you know, started off in, in East Coon Public Schools, went to Cleveland Heights Public Schools and everything and targeted, uh, you know, and said, hey, this dude needs to be on Ritalin. This dude um, has attention deficit disorder or, you know, um, being singled out, you know, being not invested in. I can even remember, you know, going to Heights and, and, and knowing that like, well, we're seeing that, okay, you know, how come I only see all the white kids doing lunch and not realizing that like, they tracked me and, and, and the kids that, you know, the, the other black, uh, black, black boys and girls for that matter, through one track and one direction through, um, as far as like opportunity and different types of classes that they take. And then the white kids go to another. And then the, the kids that ha had, um, that they said had issues, issues. They had something called Taylor Academy back then, which was about 98% black, you know? And, and so it's like- Yeah, we, 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 we called that the bad school. That's what we call yeah. Taylor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, so, so, so I mean, those, those types of things, you know, I mean, I, I think there's, there's so many different mechanisms. I, I know I'm probably getting off point, but like, I think that, I mean, it's just, it's just uh, a very complex, a very complex sort of like, um, you know, system um, that has many parts to it. Um, but nevertheless, I think that we can clearly see now that like e even when, you know, um, I mean, I mean, I guess black men and women are getting shot by, we're getting shot by police and that kind of stuff all over the country. And I don't think it just started to happen, but I think the power of social media to sort of like um, expose a lot of different things, um, you know, kind of like you know you know show that it is it's still it's still happening that kind of thing but like no major attention on how do we invest in black boys in in school how do we how do we 
you know, change the way education um, is uh, catered towards black boys. Cause I think that they, uh, I think, I think that, you know, they, they, they learn differently than, than girls and that kind of stuff. Um, you know, how do, how do we, how do we make them more successful? You know, how do, how do we stay with them? How do we, how do we develop into leaders? Right now it's not popular for men to be leaders now, you know, it's just not, you know, mm. although, you know, although the expectation is there, you know, and so uh, uh, to me, uh, you know, dealing with the things that, you know, I, I see in community firsthand, you know, my passion is whenever I can to so like really try to speak into the lives of, of young black boys and that kind of stuff. And I mean, that, that really goes into some of like the spiritual aspect uh, of the work I do, because, you know, around that time when I came to East Cleveland, you know, I was running from God too, in, in a sense. Uh, and not everybody is spiritual, and so may not understand a particular part. But I realize that the work that I do in community can't be successful, uh, you know, without divine intervention. And so, um, I mean, so that I mean, I, re I realize that because I see it. Because even speaking to some of the some of the, some, some of the young people that I speak to, um, isn't it, a lot of a lot of ways. I mean, there's been so much, uh, you know. Uh, pain and that they've endured that is only going is only going to be God that brings them out you know even by like trying to even try to it's, it's like they're, they're like you know some of some some of the people are, are like uh like their, their minds just not there there's not even thinking you know that kind of stuff and so um you know I, I just believe God makes a difference for that and so I'm at getting away from that um I think is it's, it's probably uh you know uh speaking about Deuteronomy 28 you know I know if you read Deuteronomy 28, you you know, well, if, if, if you're not familiar with it, uh, Fred Hammond sings the song, blessing the city, blessing the fields, you know, et cetera, et cetera, and that kind of stuff. But there's there's a there's another portion of that that says that 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 talks about like, well, if you don't put God first, these these are things that happens. And it literally, in my opinion, like, you know, describes East Cleveland or, you know, you go anywhere where you know you see a dysfunction within the community that kind of stuff i mean you kind of see it and so um yeah so there's a lot to unpack in that and man we'd love to have you back to kind of talk about that uh but i think that that's a there's there's so much in that because a lot of us don't understand the indirect weapons of mass destruction from the media you mentioned social media that can also be a weapon the music that our kids listen to the movies they watch the push to be a professional athlete there's a lot to unpack there in almost every part of our lives but i want to get into the work that you do with noah um you mentioned about your passion and how you started what caused you to take that leap form your own cdc and kind of go into the work that you do and how you're helping to impact the community in a positive way yeah yeah, so so I mean that, that's 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 so. So you guys have so so uh, I just got my mind positioned around to give you guys what happened in East Cleveland, and you got the the PowerPoint up. But but the but talking about Noah, um, and so Noah wasn't always like what it is right now. As a matter of fact, it was an organization that was established back in '97, way before me. Um, it was a, a congregational base, a faith based. Uh, organizing entity that organized faith-based institutions to address social justice issues throughout Northeast Ohio. It was a combination of like churches and mosques and 
and everybody in between basically uh, to organize around my social justice issues and um, so, so familiar to GCC, the Greater Cleveland Congregations. Uh, one of the things that they, you know, to be honest, or, the organizing process in general is a very exhausting sort of like thing to do, um, year in, year out, and that kind of thing. And I think, the, you know, to my understanding, my predecessor, his, um, um, the leadership team that, 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 that he worked with um, basically set, decided that they actually wanted to have a little bit more tangible influence on the, you know, they wanted tangible, more tangible outcomes than just convening big public meetings with really important people and talking about social justice issues and, and pontificating about, you know, proposed solutions and that kind of thing, and maybe or maybe not winning things. They actually wanted to actually engage a community. And so that's why they decided to come to Communities Cleveland. And that's where they sort of like met me. And I can remember back in, I would say, I believe it was like 08, my, my, my predecessor who, very talented organizer, um, uh, was uh, a white guy though. Um, his name was Jason Lair. He was working. Uh, he was, I, 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 actually I learned about the meeting from uh, leadership, um, leadership uh, program that I was going through called Neighborhood Leadership Institute. Um, and uh, one of the facilitators, Jack Gillen, basically told me about Noah being in the communities of Cleveland. And so I actually went to one of the meetings that they had. And, and one thing I noticed about East Cleveland was that there's a lot of passion. There's a lot of passion, a lot of great people, but what kind of like uh, make that kind of like messy is there's a lot of misinformation and there's a lot of frustration that's sort of like, uh, and, and so like a, and, and within that frustration is sort of like a spirit of cannibalism, whereas like people basically attack each other, not really understanding the structures uh, uh, that creates the challenges that they see. And not only that, but like, you know, they're not really organized in a strategic way to actually address them. And so this guy was basically going up and it was about maybe 20 uh, Afro-American, mostly seniors um, at this church um, meeting with um, this organizer. And he was basically making a proposition to them, basically saying, hey, we wanna teach you guys community organizing skills that will allow you to more strategically address the challenges that you have and everything in the community. And like, we wanna like work with you guys to lead campaigns actually addressing these challenges, that kind of stuff. And so here's a, here's a white guy from, you know, uh, I, I get, well, he lives in Cleveland Heights now, but like, you know, making this proposition to, you know, the, these uh, African-American, mostly seniors and that kind of thing. And, you know, those basically like, we don't trust you and all that kind of stuff. And so I got up and I said, you know, whether you trust him or not, you know, we, if, if he can teach us how to, you know, organize ourselves, organize ourselves in a strategic way to address the challenges that we face in a way that's productive and the way that actually will yield some type of outcome that's positive, we should take him on that because no matter what happens, if, he, if, if we learn how to do this, then, then we have that, that skill set. And so, I mean, I gave this basically this proverbial, I have a dream speech and didn't think it was that, you know, you know, significant, but after, at the, at the end of that meeting, he basically offered me a job. And I was like, you know, at the time, you know, I was like, well, I don't know. And I asked a friend of mine um, who was a union organizer um, and, and I really didn't even know what organizing was and didn't even know that that's what he did, that kind of stuff. But he said, man, you should, you should think about it. And so 
you know, I ran into the guy again and he kind of asked me again, but a little, little threat behind, like, please, <laughs> that kind of stuff. And so I agreed to take it. I transitioned from, you know, the world of, you know, working in the machine shop, uh, making prototype uh, machine components and that kind of stuff to um, community organizing. And so I would say uh, my start date was right after the Obama election because, you know, in 08, nothing happened but Obama, right? Um, and then, you know, then I started after that, November 17th of 2008. And then shortly after that, um, my predecessor, he resigned and recommended to the board that I take over the organization. And then what also happened was sort of like the faith, the congregational base that, that typically supported NOAA, sort of like, kind of like, you know, you know, they didn't really walk, I mean, they kind of walked away, but like, you know, because the, the heart of the organization became East Cleveland residents because we, I, I believe we became really successful at work, doing neighborhood organizing. I wanted to ask you that. Yeah. Um, like, yeah. so when you, when you, took over and you got in there like how did the community accept you like how how did they uh like how were they towards you and also like what was one of like the first things you wanted to like tackle and get into once you took over so, so a, lot, a lot of things one I, th I think that, that like many people thought the organization outside of East Cleveland I think many people thought the organization was just going to fall and everything and so when my predecessor left you know it was like, okay, well, make it work if you can. <laughs> this is like, you know, when the captain, you know, gives, uh, makes it was like a lack of support. Was that? It was well, like a lack of support. Well, well, I, I, it was just a lot of things going on that, like, it was up to me to sort of like make the organization work. And literally, we, we repurposed the organization. It's not like it was before. The heart of the organization is East Cleveland residents, predominantly African American community. Um, that that's the organization now versus like congregations throughout, you know, the region and that kind of stuff. Um, the, the, uh, and so, so, so yeah, so, so, so that, that was one thing. And so I, I, I think the community actually received me well, one, because I'm an East Cleveland resident. I think that that had a lot to do with it. Um, you know, I think that like, you know, people, especially our older population, because, you know, if you look at most organizing groups, uh, seniors actually put in a lot of work and that kind of thing. And, and, you know, I think they saw a young black man like really trying and they had a lot of grace for me. And so uh, they wanted to see things be successful. And so as far as like, you know, my interactions with you know, the East Community East Cleveland, I think that they, they really supported, um, really supported the work. And then when they actually saw things getting done because of the organizing, you know, I think that that built more momentum. So uh, within organizing structure, um, you know, the first thing you do is a listening campaign to kind of like surface issues and everything. And so we listen campaigns, probably maybe a couple of, about a hundred one-to-ones, one-on-one meetings with people, individual meetings, and, you know, and then like meetings, group meetings, that kind of stuff where you uh, talk to residents and, and, and so like, come on the consensus of like the top issues that a community has and everything. And for East Cleveland at that time, it was banned vacant properties, uh, crime and safety and schools and that kind of stuff. And so the first task I had as an organizer was actually going into schools and do parent patrols and everything. But I mean, there's a lot of different things with that, um, a lot of bureaucracy and everything that kind of slowed that thing down. But what I realized early on that like, now the, the most most opportune issue that we had was how we deal with, address these vacant and abandoned properties. 
And that was sort of like our claim to fame of as far as like really coming up with a strategy to get millions of dollars of resources from the region to help address vacant abandoned properties in East Cleveland. And uh, from that led, um, you know, strategic demolition strategies where we include residents to basically stabilize their streets by, uh, you know, eliminating vacant properties on their street. Well, you know, with the, with the power of, at that time, it was uh, neighborhood stabilization program dollars. There was stimulus dollars for basically to deal, deal with, you know, vacant abandoned properties. Um, there's hard to sit funds. There's the property demolition fund. And then there was a Cal Cal County Land Bank as well that basically is this community development corporation on steroids that's powered by uh, tax delinquent uh, revenue that that's only job is to go and repurpose land so that it can begin to generate tax revenue again. So, so that's a lot of big academic stuff, but, um, but, but nevertheless, we were able to leverage that to, so that East Cleveland right now there's a lot of potential for development, you know, because we've we've cleared away a lot of uh, public nuisance properties and been able to uh, assemble, um, you know, big lots of land that we can market for development. That kind of so so that that was sort of like the, the big claim to fame uh, for us. Um, yeah. So, so, but but I, you you asked the question a little bit about like what happened to East Cleveland to make it to where it's at right now. And so I got a couple of stats up on my screen right now. I know you can't see it, but I, I just said, so the 1950s, uh, East Cleveland's population was a little bit north of 40,000 uh, uh, 40, people. And it had less than 1% non-white population and everything. And that doesn't necessarily mean that it's black, it's just non-white. And then in the 1960s, it was less than 2% non-white. And then in the 70s, uh, it, it, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a uh, coined term by uh, Dennis Keating, who was a professor at uh, CSU, who wrote a book, uh, um, uh, The Racial Urban Dilemma. And basically he calls it resegregation. So that happened in the 1970s. So between the 1970s and the 1990s, East Cleveland population went, well, from 1960s to 1970s, East Cleveland's population went between from uh, less than 2% non-white to the 1970s, which is about 10 years, to about 67% black until between the 1970s and 1990s, it went to 94% black. And now we're like about 91% black in East Cleveland right now. Um, and so you may say, okay, because, you know, like, um, you know, so is that the reason why East Cleveland went down because it became black? No, no. Um, they, 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 during that time, and I think this is a point that's always like looked over because I hate to think that, you know, just because people resegregate a community to being black, then that means that it's gonna go downhill. What happened was uh, during that time, just like everybody else, um, black people with means actually left the communities Cleveland, leaving only seniors and people who didn't have means and everything. So they, they, they were going, they were urban sprawl, they, they were sprawling out too. But there was a time in East Cleveland that there was a lot of black businesses and um, a lot of, lot of like um, just, just black families that lived in East Cleveland and that kind of stuff. And so East Cleveland not only suffered from white flight, but it suffered from class flight as well and that kind of thing. And that stuff was, was exploited by the real estate industry and, and you know, other things. And of course, like some of the um, bad political decisions that were made, um, you know, kind of like uh, lent, lent a hand into making East Cleveland a little bit less desirable to live too. And then so, uh, just looking at the population, I'm looking at the population graph right now. And so I said in 1950s, the population was about north of 40,000 people with 
roughly about like between 18 to, to 18 to, to 20,000 people um, uh, actually working in the city. Um, if, if you did uh, uh, the, 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 the um, uh, if, if you did the, uh, goodness, it's just a term um, where, where you, where you uh, factor what, how much money will be that people made in the household um, in the 1950s comparable to now. So the average household uh, comparably would have been like around like 50,000 equivalent, that kind of stuff. And so when you fast forward to the 1920s, the population went down to 17,000 people roughly, give or take, and with about 5,000 people in the entire city working. And so you can see tax revenue just, just left. And so there's a bunch of sort of like um, things that happened uh, you know, block busting steering, uh, steering practices of realtors that exploited race, racial anxiety. Uh, you know, at that time, black people moving to the community was kind of like a really big thing. And so uh, there was no like, I mean, but East Cleveland at that time was like kind of automatic. It, as a matter of fact, the city manager kind of ran everything and controlled the politics. So it had minimal community like engagement. And so there's no uh, there's no significant active independent civic organization to offer alternative leadership to help community uh, the community to actually change you know, address the challenges that it had, which which makes me feel good about Noah being here. And then um, uh, I think that there is a um, there, there, there's there's a lot of things like just dealing with uh, you know managing or addressing race relationships in East Cleveland. Um, and then uh, there's, I think there's a misopportunity to recruit more working class and affluent Afro-Americans. And then there's, there's a term called filtering, whereas like, you know, people move out of their house, housing value goes down and then people get in a house where they can't really afford to keep it up. And so the housing stock goes down as well. Um, and then the financial distress began sort of like in 1998 when East Cleveland went into, well, it didn't begin there, but it was there, where East Cleveland entered in fiscal emergency for the first time. Um, now, now is in fiscal emergency again. It probably should never have went out if you actually study the, the stats and everything. But then in 2003, this is a significant thing. So East Cleveland was expecting roughly about $8 million in property tax that it didn't receive. It's because people literally just walked away from their homes and that kind of thing. And so that drastically affected the city's ability to be able to like provide basic city services. And then of course the population um, you know, declined from you know, being you know, peaking at 40,000 to like about 17,000 people and that kind of stuff. And so, uh, so those, those are some of the things that happened, that kind of thing. So real quick, before we let you go, and that is, I mean, I know you've got your uh, slides and everything there, but we definitely gonna have to do another episode because one of the things that we talk about is when we get our paycheck, how much of mm -hmm. it are we circulating within the community, right? And I'm not talking about charity or we may build a school or form a grant or something. I'm talking about your normal everyday needs, the things that, so when black people usually move, like you said, uh, because they did, East Cleveland didn't just suffer from white flight, it also suffered from black flight too. The yeah. affluent class blacks, flight. right? Yeah. yeah, the class flight, they moved to white neighborhoods and when they left, their money went with them. So they, were, they probably weren't continuing to spend money in the city of East Cleveland versus in the new areas that they live at that time. But before we let you go, I want to ask you this last question. And it's kind of a two part, but you know, you can, you can answer it as you will. One, do you think East Cleveland will benefit from annexation with the city of Cleveland? And number two, 
where do you see East Cleveland with the work that you're doing in the next 10 to 20 years? And if you can just hit those points real quick. Yeah, so, so annexation is definitely a, a very, very complex and controversial subject, um, depending on, I mean, and especially depending on like your perspective, because I mean, if you look first in and that kind of stuff, you may say, well, you know, well, I don't want East Cleveland annex because it's a predominantly African community or anything. But when you look at like um, patterns of cities throughout Northeast Ohio and across the country for that matter, you know, East Cleveland was created to insulate wealth, right? And so that, that's why they created three points, uh, two square mile area and everything. And they made it a city and they were, have, they were able to have their own school district and, and benefit from the property tax that they generate without giving it to anybody else. Um, you know, they, they were able to have their cities, their city services, amenities and that kind of stuff. But now, you know, um, you know um, the, the municipal boundaries that we have insulates poverty. You know, and it, you know, and it, you know, basically, I mean, there's a lot of resources that like we try to actually go after and everything that are not in East Cleveland. You know, and, and so I mean, the answer, and so so although we have people power, and I think you know, and that that goes a long way to actually leverage resources in the community, um, but the money and the resources and that and that wise, uh, they got to come from outside the community of East Cleveland, um, and so what we've seen of late. Um, you know, beginning, I believe, with uh, Kasich, Governor Kasich, where uh, the, the state, been, they, they, they basically took a different uh, lean on how they distribute, um, redistribute local government funds to cities. They've been giving local cities a lot less. And so it's becoming more difficult to support urban sprawl um, um, and autonomous cities operating in the silos throughout Northeast Ohio. Uh, you know, you know, in, you know, in an isolated way. In other words, so not only is it costing East Cleveland more to to be able to occupy, I mean, to 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 act as a you know independent city. Same thing with Cleveland Heights, who have to raise, I believe, property tax or income tax. Lakewood, same thing. Um, other communities. I mean, it's it's just becoming more expensive to be an autonomous city, and so, I, you know. It, I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful, but I'm thinking that it's, it's probably inevitable that East Cleveland will, will have to look at annexation. But I think the, 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 the opportunity that we have is, I mean, when I look at things like University Circle, right? Un University Circle is an institution that's created over 100 years ago, and they came up with a vision for what they wanted for that piece of land that they got and everything with the institutions that make up University Circle. And they've been able to adhere to that vision and grow that vision over the last 100 years, and they've done a great job. Now, if you ask them who they are, are they own their own city? I said, no, they have their own police though, right? They have their own services. Things act differently in University Circle than it acts in other communities, right? And the reason why is because they have a vision for that community and they have an institution, UCI, um, that, that basically drives that vision with the help of its partner and anchor institutions within that community. And so what I, what I would say is, that, you know, to me, you know, I look at, you know, the difference between, uh, you know, having a city or having control of development and economic infrastructure is two different things. And I think that it can be preserved um, through an organization like NOAA that, that, that actually looks to create opportunity structures for the indigenous population or anything. If we can sort of like establish a vision for the community and, and gather the resources to facilitate that in a way that a UCI does, 
that's a lot more powerful than controlling a city that has no resources and are locked out from the resources that are in the region. Because like I said, this Northeast Ohio is very market strong, but, it, but it's a matter of, you know, how can you connect to those resources? And so UCI being, I mean, well, University Circle being uh, an area where they, they drive all this economic, you know, um, activity, um, but they're a part of the city of Cleveland, which means they get money from the city of Cleveland. They're part of the county, they're part of the state. They benefit from all those different factors, but because they have an institution in place that, that facilitates the type of development and the type of growth that they want to see, then, then they're, being, they're, they're very successful in driving their own economy. And, I, and so the vision I have for East Cleveland is sort of like, to me, transcends local politics and, and municipal boundaries in a way like, I mean, what I'm trying to build, you know, within NOAA is as is avenue for, you know, people of color to be able to access opportunity and, and, and build an economy that, 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 that benefits um, the people that live here, that benefits, you know, our people. And so uh, I guess the, the call to action is, you know, who else is willing to buy into that vision and invest, not build something new, but tap into something that, 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 that is already being built. Uh, because one, it takes a lot of energy to get to this point. Um, like I've been here for 12 years, over 12 years, um, you know, doing this work and everything and getting to the point now where just not being able to see the opportunity, um, you know, for, you know, seeing this thing come to fruition. But I mean, it takes a lot of time to actually get that going. That's a lot. I know. I, I maybe the next meeting, I won't be so talkative, man, but <laughs> no, nah, bro, you're good. Yeah. You know, man, you, uh, this was good. I feel this like this, awesome. this episode is going to impact and going to be very important to all black communities. Everyone needs to hear this. Definitely how you broke down, how to build up your community. But um, thank you for your time. Thank you for taking the time out of your your evening to sit with us, to give us some knowledge. We definitely going to set up a, a part two so we can really, really dig deep into the dig meat of into it. Yep. Yeah. Um, this one was kind of like freestyle. We got a lot. We got a lot of, oh, yeah, lot man. of great points and, out of this. This is how it is when... Ever we talk, I feel like I'm the student and Travel is the teacher, right? So, oh, so. I mean, no, nah, but honestly, man, love your passion, love what you do, um, love what you stand for, love the fact that unlike so many others, you haven't given up on the on the city of East Cleveland, which is a city that I also grew up in. Uh, my, I told you this, my grandfather stayed right on Roselle. I went to Roselle as a, as a kid. So I'm very, very familiar with the city, very familiar with the history of the city. And uh, somebody who has taken the initiative to want to sort of give it a, a, a rebirth that you can look at this blank canvas and say, okay, we can build this the same way they took a desert and built Las Vegas, right? The same way they took just a beachside shanty town and built miami the same way they built all these other phenomenal cities because somebody had vision so um shout out to you man uh congratulations on what you're doing uh you got a group of guys who are willing to pitch in helping support we definitely gonna get back to the beat down <laughs> yeah yeah so. i want i, I, I want to say uh say this uh, i really appreciate you alex um and so uh willie I, I don't know if you know um, Alex um, dedicated some time to actually uh, start this sort of like the, the, the beat down in East Cleveland that basically gets uh, young and old uh, men uh, um, out 
and is you know to to, to number one uh, really challenge their bodies as far as getting back in shape because I think that's important. That's one thing that like you know I hate when we look at the different stats, even even around like this coronavirus thing, that kind of stuff. And our community seems to be the last one to actually like realize we need to do something about our health and we need to take things seriously. Um, but but he came out and um, and so like uh, showed us how to to work out, you know. Um, and it was hard. It was it really is the beat down and everything. But like I think that even though like um, we we had to stop because of the the weather change and that kind of stuff and and we got we got we got big crowds sometimes and sometimes we didn't get big crowds. But I think it really sort of like ignited, it was a catalyst in a lot of the young people that, young men that we worked with to, to, for them to realize that they need to really think a little bit more deeply about like, you know, where their life is going and that like blowing in the wind is not a plan, is, is, not, is not effective. And so um, hopefully we can keep that up um, going into, you know, 2021. I look forward to it um, and, and God bless you for that. And then just also just thank you for allowing me to be here. I'm that, you know, I, I try to, you know, um, speaking ways that 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 is that is not so long-winded and is just basic and plain. But like, you get me start talking about something I'm passionate about, it could be for days. But 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 just thanks thanks for the patience and um and thanks for having me on. No sir, thank thank you. And Willie, you got anything? Nope. Just make sure you guys like and subscribe to our YouTube channels and also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at the Black Culture Podcast. Thank you.